Welcome to the Farcast, helping you navigate the economic and investing landscape. Information from Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, July the 14th. Uh, July the 14th. Here we go. Uh, It's been kind of an interesting week, hasn't it, with CPI and PPI and inflation that people believe in and desperate to call it peak inflation. But as I've been saying for a couple of weeks, folks, it's sort of like saying that the uh, forest fire seems to be cooling a bit. Um, It probably won't mean a lot to you if you've got a house somewhere in the path of that forest fire, temperature might be coming down, but you never know where the next gust of winds might come from to then again fuel it. We continue to see the Federal Reserve say that they are going uh, to uh, raise rates, that they're gonna fight inflation, and they really do mean it this time. For all of the Wall Street talking heads, my very good friends out there who keep suggesting that the Fed is gonna blink, that they're gonna go too far, that they'll be easing rates by the beginning of 2023. This uh, reminds me of that wonderful book, When Wish Replaces Thought. I know that we want it to be over, I know that we don't want it to go any higher. I know that this is a really uncomfortable and lousy narrative to have to live with, but it's our job to call balls and strikes. Let's look at the data, let's see where things are going, and let's make disciplined decisions about our investment portfolios. That's what we try to do here on the Farcast as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Joining us now, Jim Labenthal, Sarity Partners, CNBC contributor, Scott Wapner's favorite punching bag, and perhaps uh, the only guy in the world, um, well, I shouldn't say it, uh, can make a certain Steve look good. Uh, Jim, welcome back to the Farcast. Michael, it's good to have you. Now, not everybody listening knows that you invited me to uh, perhaps co-host in the future. Yes. Um, guest host was the exact terms, but based on that introduction, <clears throat> I'm wondering if you're bucking for a guest host opportunity in place of Wapner. My, <laughs> my goodness, you swept my feet right out from under me, but I'm back on my feet and ready to go, my friend. And ready to go. Let me tell you, uh, I've been watching, I've been watching Wapner. You're his favorite sport these days. Uh, tell us what you're seeing in the markets. What do these inflation numbers mean? When do you think Scott Wapner will quit taking swings at you? Uh, I mean, and, and, and does Weiss sort of get jealous when Wapner does all the swinging and he doesn't get as many shots in? Well, you know, it's funny. Now, you're referring to an episode that we just, uh, we just uh, did about, I don't know, two hours. Well, I'm referring to about the past six months, but okay. Okay. Now, listen, I think I've been doing the show for nine, nine years, if you can believe it. And I think yeah. uh, it's been that way the whole time. So I don't see it changing anytime soon. What right. I do see changing sometime soon is the tone of the market. And listen, I, I think your intro, introducing comments were on the money. We never want to let the wish be the father of the thought. Um, you know, certainly I have been uh, calling for optimism for quite some time and I would like it to show up. Uh, in the stock market, but I'm calling for that optimism based on what I see. The PPI and the CPI that we just received were for a month ago. 
And over the last month, things have changed dramatically. So to start with, commodity levels have really fallen precipitously. Um, sort of one of the one of the smallest drops uh, is gasoline, which is down. The futures are down 30 percent in a month. And that has not yet shown up at the pump. It has partially shown up, but it has not yet fully shown up. And it will over the coming weeks. It will do a lot to help consumer sentiment. And with consumer sentiment, investors will be a little bit more buoyed that consumption will hang in there. Now, by the same token, uh, food futures, wheat and corn have come down mightily. They're back to levels before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So a lot of this horrible, and I do mean horrible inflation that we've seen in the past few months, looks like it's, it's already reversing. Um, of course, if you or anyone wants to give a retort, you can say, yeah, I've heard that before. Oh, Jim, I, uh, I, I have watched you for too long and uh, you are way too smart, uh, way too thoughtful for anybody to be that glib with you. That would be a mistake. And, and listeners out there, I am telling you, don't take Jim Labenthal lightly, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, listen to him all the time. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what, what's, on, what's on my mind that, that, that runs a little bit counter to that which is the dollar. And we've seen the dollar this year go from 113 to the Euro to now 99 cents and change. And when you see that kind of a, of, of, of a rally in the dollar and the change in the currency, doesn't that account for a lot of those pullbacks in those commodity prices? Um, yes, but definitely not all and not even close to all. Okay, so particularly on the last thing that I mentioned, wheat and corn futures, crops have come in better this year than expectations, period, end of story. I mean, your point is well made, I'm not denigrating it, but the overarching theme here in food is that uh, crops have come in better than expectations and that has mitigated the shortages that uh, would have otherwise been produced in Ukraine. Um, now, I think a, a, a reasonable retort on the gasoline and energy front is that, yeah, okay, energy prices are down. Maybe it's the dollar, Michael, but I think it's more likely that we've had some demand destruction, whether it's COVID shutdowns in China or the perception of um, a looming reception, a recession here and possibly a present recession in Europe. Um, those, those may well be true, but the, still the fact of the matter is, let me cut to the chase. It's the U.S. economy that powers the rest of the world. Europe probably is in recession right now. I don't want to be glib. I don't want to sound glib, but honestly, it's not going to matter. When is the last time that the European economy has driven the global economy? Answer, no. not in my lifetime. Mm -mm. No. No, it, 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 Europe's uh, European economy, sorry, is big enough to create a headwind or a tailwind that, you know, can either make you feel a little bit better or irritate you on those bad days. You know, Lizanne Saunders says, uh, who I know is a friend of yours, says um, that you pay attention to the direction of things. Which direction are we, are we moving in? And it still strikes me Jim, that we're still moving in that inflationary direction. If I look at shelter uh, in particular, uh, if I look at the wages, I take a look at the pilots when, when we see United was up, what was it, 14% and then American went up 17%. I'm not sure what Delta did with their, with their pilots, but you know, flight attendants and baggage handlers and all the others, I've been getting emails. I'm on a teacher's union. I used to be a teacher 30 years ago. 
and I still get teachers union email. To my knowledge, I was never a member of the teachers union, but once they get your name, you can't, they find you anywhere. So, uh, you know, uh, explaining why teachers should be very, very dissatisfied, why they're underpaid, on and on and on. So with this kind of coming uh, ongoing uh, wage inflation out there and shelter costs going up, I think, you know, we should see at some point this will all certainly peak and start to roll over. Uh, what do you think about the direction of things? And it, what, how long couldn't this last through the end of the year or the halfway through next year? So at the end of your question, you got to where I really want to go, which is which is time span. Because you have to give me some time usually, Jim. I'll get there sooner or later. You know? I, I ramble for a while and then I get to the point. Well, if you hadn't gotten there, I was going to go there. But I mean, I think, I think I think the front part of your question deserves an answer. Yes, of course, wage inflation matters. Of course it does. And I see the same things that you're seeing. And honestly, we're in the fog of war because there is the other side of this war, which is that you're starting to see initial weekly jobless claims pick up. And there's a lot of people who are saying that uh, unemployment is going to pick up with it, which will be a counter uh, a counterbalancing effect to the very real uh, inflationary wage pressures that you're speaking about. Ultimately, I'm going to answer my own question. I think where that balance strikes out is that labor supply is starting to come into balance with labor demand. It's still got a long way to go, but it's moving in the right direction. Now, on the topic of directions, I think what really matters for the market here is what direction is the Fed headed in? And you said this earlier, uh, the Fed is hell-bent for leather right now to raise interest rates and crush, in crush inflation. I hope that they actually raise by 100 basis points at the end of the month. Let's get it done. Let's get going and get it done. What's the point of doing 75 now and 50 a month later or two months later? There's no point in that. Let's get it done. Get the 100 basis points in there, bring the Fed funds rate to two and a half percent, and then see if anything I'm saying about commodities or inventory levels or freight costs or what I've just said about jobless claims, all of which should be bringing down inflation. Let's see if that starts to take hold. But and I see, I, I, I know you want to jump in. Let me say one thing. Last thing, this is the biggest thing. It's all time frame. I do think by the end of the year, we're going to be in a heck of a lot better place. I think the Fed will be done with this heavy lifting. I think inflation will have its back broken. But over the next two weeks, two months, probably going to be ugly. So you got to have a time frame of longer than a few, a few months, which I know you do and you know I do. I do know that you do and certainly I do. Uh, is the Fed jousting at windmills? Uh, can the Fed, in, in what they're doing, actually affect the inflation that's out there being caused by Ukraine and oil and China shutdowns where we have factories and cities shutting down? I, I'm just seeing that, I mean, this is a, as, as Art Cashin would say, you know, cocktail napkin analysis, uh, but to say, maybe as much as 40 or 50% of the inflation that we're seeing is not rooted in the U.S. And so while we can slow the U.S., perhaps we can't actually take inflation asunder the way the Fed wants to, but yet it's the only tool they have. And if they go too far with it, I think the fear is, of course, that the recession here becomes more severe and perhaps unnecessarily while inflation just sort of gets hamstrung a bit. You, you follow my thinking here. I, yes? I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go with you to the water that you're leading me to. And I might take a sip of it, but I'm not going to drink deeply. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. 
to start with is the Fed tilting at windmills. And this is gratuitous to say, but they've gotten a lot wrong. And the reason it's gratuitous to say is because a lot of people have gotten a lot of things wrong. So let's not let's not make. Let, hey, hey, let's just go ahead and, and say that uh, you and I, as being the only two perfect people we actually know, I think do a good job with our perfection and 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 probably excel of all things most at humility, really. So we're very patient with all of these other imperfect people. Go ahead, Jim. I just wanted to make well, sure everybody understood. I'm honored to be uh, to be by your side, but I'm not yeah, sure I merit perfection, it. Perfection, yes. Year. But uh, you and I might be the only two who agree with that ever. Look, I think it's gratuitous to slam the Fed. They're doing a darn good job. I think they're really smart people. We're, we're in, honestly, what this all comes from is this never before seen experiment of what happens if you shut down the global economy for several months? Like yes. what happens? Well, now we know. I mean, you know, economics books and history books are going to be written. And we're going to say, you know what? Supply chains have a problem with just the slightest perturbation in demand. If you take demand from 100 to zero in a week, it's not going to come back in a, in a smooth fashion. And it isn't. Oh, and then add, as you're pointing out, the war in Ukraine. Um, by the way, on the war in Ukraine, I, I, I think what we need to take from that is that the energy markets are not going to balance anytime soon. And I don't want to say that glibly and just move on. I think the rest of the commodity markets will be just fine, witness what's going on with corn and wheat. But energy, frankly, there is a solution. We're not there yet. It's a political solution here in the U.S. to embrace fossil fuels. Not going to happen with this administration. It might happen after the November elections. It might. I don't know how that's going to turn out, but you could get a strong enough Republican wave after the after the midterm elections that there's that that is powerful enough to do some energy friendly things. Um, we have to wait and see. OK, well, you just gave me the slam dunk. I cannot I cannot disagree with any man who can use the word perturbation uh, in his argument as as, as as smoothly. I mean, it was almost it just boiled all the way in there. All right. So, Jim, Fred and Ethel are waiting to hear what they should be doing with their portfolios. They listen to CNBC people all the time going, I'm trimming this and I'm buying that and I'm nibbling on this and I'm adding that. I think they get very bored with me when I say, well, I'm actually not doing anything. I'm yeah, holding I stuff I hold. And I'm, with, you know. with, with uh, you know, response to what you hear on CNBC about so-and-so is doing this and this person's doing that, blah, 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 blah. It's very simple. Very simple. Two things. Buy high quality companies and hold them. And yep. if you get more cash, buy them, okay? Yes. And hold them over years and years. If you do that, you will make it through downturns like this and you will get to the other side where the sun comes out and shines and the grass grows and you know children play in the fields, okay? That's what happened after the 2020 downturn. That's what happened after the great financial crisis. That's what happened after the tech and telecom bust. That's what happens. The sun comes out again. And if you're in high quality companies, you make it through. Then you look back on periods like this and you say, you know what? It sucked, but we got through it. And now we're making money again. I think we'll be through it by the end of the year. By the end of the year. All right. I certainly hope so, too. And there's a decent chance we will be. My friend and longtime partner and mentor, John Washington, said that the best time to buy stocks is when you have money. And the only time to sell stocks is when you need money. And he made a lot of money doing that. Jim Labenthal is a partner at Sarity Partners, a portfolio manager, is a contributor, paid contributor for CNBC television. You see him on the Halftime Report. He is a wonderfully nice man, smart as hell, and my friend. Thanks, Jim, for being on the podcast. I'm honored to be your friend. I really am. Thank you, Michael. Uh
I am too. We'll be right back with Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. What is going on in Washington? Please stay with us. We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining us now, as he does every week here into season five, almost heading into season six, the man, the myth, the legend, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on the Farcast. Dan, welcome back. Thank you, Michael. Great to be talking to you. We're really glad you're here. I believe as we speak, the president is uh, heading or getting ready to head to the Middle East right now. Uh, he's got meetings in Saudi Arabia. He's got meetings uh, in Israel. Um, I don't know how many uh, stops he has on this whistle-stop tour, charm offensive mm. of the Middle East, where he's trying to get several things done at once, including perhaps an increased supply of oil. Uh, to the markets and to the U.S. What's the president doing on this trip? What's the agenda? How long is he going to be gone? Uh, I think the agenda is oil and Iran. Um, while he's there, I will say, look, it's the, and you know, however you want to take this order, one, by going to Israel, it is a message that we are still there supporting our ally in the region, despite this continuing to escalate series of uh, tit-for-tat, spy-versus-spy type of uh, uh, escapades and attacks that you have going on in Iran and the concerns about the nuclear program and the nuclear talks, uh, which I will say look closer and closer to collapse, although uh, neither side, none of the sides involved really want to say that the uh, the deal's done. But, you know, when the Iranians are selling drones to the Russians to use in Ukraine, uh, that's sending a sign that the, uh, you know, which way the Iranians are looking in their interests and who they're aligning themselves with. So, so the nuclear the, the, talks, you're saying the nuclear talks are falling apart and the Iranians uh, ongoing uh, allegiance, alliance with- uh, Metaphor I've used for the, the, the talks is life support. You know, they're on the, that's the on level. Of, yeah, I would say what that. What does it and, mean, this new relationship or strengthening relationship between Russia uh, and, and, and Iran? And is this another front on which the U.S. is going to fight a Cold War if the president's going to visit Israel? Well, I think, look, it's, it continues to be, there's always been a ongoing proxy war against the Iranians. Make no mistake about it, be it their proxies, the Houthis, Hezbollah, uh, the way the uh, their support for the Assad regime uh, there's always been confrontation against the Iranians going on, the sanctions in place. I think this just formalizes more into the uh, bad guys, uh, us versus them mentality. Um, and you also see it uh, on the us mentality uh, that one of the things you see the Biden administration continuing is the cooperation with the Saudis, with the UAE and Israel building on where the Trump administration actually had done some pretty revolutionary diplomacy and getting the Gulf uh, monarchies and the Israelis to formalize and normalize a lot of their ties. So credit due, even though the administration won't say it, uh, the fact that our allies are working much closer together in the region uh, and that the Biden administration can build on that goes back to the Trump administration efforts. Uh, so, the so ultimate the question mark, though, so the Trump administration yes, 
the Trump administration did a good job with that, in your opinion. Oh, they did. They did a good job in moving the ball forward on getting further cooperation and diplomatic normalization between those uh, countries. Uh, beyond that, though, I would say the question mark will be this meeting with the Saudis. We already had it somewhat telegraphed at the G7 meeting when Macron said that the, uh, the he spoke to the Saudis. There's no spare capacity when it comes to oil. Uh, I don't know what the you know the ultimate outcome can be because as much as the uh, you know the the we want this to uh, result in some kind of oil deal, more supply. You don't just turn these taps on overnight, right? Okay, so uh, what do we what do we expect? Is this just sort of a diplomatic show? Is this a whistle stop, uh, a goodwill tour where the Saudis feel better that the U.S. president is paying a visit? I mean, that's a big deal. I think everyone feels better that the U.S. is paying attention, particularly in the rhetoric of a, you know, focused on Ukraine, focused on China. Uh, the Middle East hasn't seemed to be too high, uh, particularly the, you know, the, the biggest regional thing was the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which really wasn't a sign of enduring American power in the area. Uh, so this is a reminder, look, that we are uh, interested there. And keep an eye on it to the the rapprochement between MBS between the Saudis and the United States because that has been chilly in the Biden administration because again so many were critical of of and we can't forget the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Yes. Okay. Uh, I I got it. All right. So let's move on to uh, the January sixth hearings. What's the impact, Dan? Uh, the impact there. I think you continue to see that even if there's a disagreement on policy that perhaps this message of, of what happened that day and the former president's role in it uh, is affecting his 2024 uh, viability. The idea that the, the president's behavior, his uh, character, all these things have been laid bare by the committee, particularly the, the idea of how they uh, were comfortable more and more with these radical groups. Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, if he was scuffling with the Secret Service, trying to get them, you know, these very lurid so details. Let's, let's that talk heard. about the process here. We have the committee that's sending these, uh, showing lots of evidence that could result in some sort of indictments or chips, you know, anyway, charges brought by the Justice Department. They send the information to the Justice Department. What's the Justice Department going to do? With all of this now, are they Justice Department charges has against a, President Trump? The Attorney General has a momentous and historical decision over uh, how far they want to go in investigating and addressing the behavior of a former president. Look, we've already established, we've seen that the Justice Department will not investigate a sitting president for, for various reasons, uh, but we've never come into this situation where we have to ask these questions about a former president. And I think let's let's pause for a second and separate that from what we might have our disagreements on policy or uh, inflation or economics or, or foreign policy, trade, et cetera. Uh, what we're seeing here is that it's laying out the way the former president approached that day and the transition of power make him no matter how you feel about political or policy choices, uh, someone unfit to hold power again. Well, I'm just wondering if if they don't bring charges because he is a former president. Well, that's that why the, the, the charges in a sense are moot if the goal is, you know, the question is, what is your goal? Is your goal to see 
President Trump, former President Trump faced charges. That's a very complicated question, navigating through the decisions the Justice Department has to make. If you want to keep him from getting the nomination again or returning to power in 2024, these hearings, I think, are actually being very effective because combined with the momentum of Governor DeSantis, you see Trump's numbers slipping in Republican polling, uh, as well as you continue to see the fact that even as unpopular as Biden is, uh, he trails Trump in a hypothetical, excuse me, Biden uh, beats Trump in a hypothetical 2024 matchup. What? Say that, what? Say that again? Yes. Uh, 44 so, to 41. So Biden would still uh, lead Trump in a uh, matchup. Now, Biden, I thought Biden is unpopular, but don't, don't mistake the fervor of a segment of the base of the Republican Party and the co-option of some of the media environment for widespread public popularity. That was very well said. OK, I'll take your point on that. Uh, I was still hearing that uh, President Trump, I want to move on here, but President Trump might announce for the presidency that he's running uh, as early as August. I was hearing that from some Republican, very high up Republican insiders. Have you heard that? Do you think that might happen? They were trying. I, th I think that's likely. And I, I think that the more you hear about momentum and money coming into the DeSantis camp, I feel the more the, uh, the president, uh, let's use the bar of the metaphor, we've just had uh, post-pandemic, the running of the bulls for the first time, uh, that DeSantis, all the good news about DeSantis, is waving that proverbial red flag uh, in front of President Trump to get the running going. They like the new kid more than they like you. Must make him crazy. I know that could hurt your feelings, I guess, but... Uh, or was... if you've heard, you know, the, the line that, he, you know, DeSantis is Donald Trump, but smart. That's not nice. I, Donald, Trump, Donald Trump is a lot of things, I think, but uh, uh, he's no dummy. Donald Trump is a smart, smart man. Um, I'm, not making a, I'm not making a political comment, ladies and gentlemen. I don't wade into the muck and I really try not to anyway. I think, yeah, I think uh, truly when you think of these people, no matter what you think of them, you do not get to these positions in the world without a mixture of intelligence and, and cleverness mixed in with. Finally, things. and I'm getting out of time here, Dan. Mm -hmm. There was still the chance we would see some sort of a spending bill. They were back and forth with Manchin. They were saying, we're going to get it. We're going to get it on uh, prescription spending. There might be something on student loans. There might be this, that, the other thing. What are the odds something gets yeah, done? Since, since I get, unless it's sort of a, a Lazarus moment, the sense I get on a big spending package is that that last inflation number really dampened expectations, really made Manchin uh, and other moderates not too excited about another big headline number spending package going into the midterms. Uh, I think they changed tack to look at something more focused on prescription spending because, look, uh, you know, for grandma and grandpa to have cheaper drugs, maybe make the Republicans vote against that uh, before November. But uh, other than that, I don't see much of an appetite for that. Uh, you also have a question of the calendar, whether you can get something on the CHIPS uh, funding. They might just take the standalone money for the semiconductors. That might just be all they can get through. Uh, and then all of this is, again, we we forget the, the beautiful, complicated logistics of a 50-50 Senate in the time of COVID with Schumer testing positive and Leahy having a broken hip. Everything has slowed down because 
again, you have a, a knife's edge majority. A knife's edge majority. As we cover, ladies and gentlemen, Wall Street, Washington, and the world, uh, please pay attention to what Dan just said. Uh, there was going to be a bill. It looked very likely. It's become less likely as the year has gone on for a number of reasons in Washington. And then finally, because of the economic data, the economic data are so hot that they don't want to have more fiscal stimulus. That's what a spending program would be. Fiscal stimulus, that puts more money out. That increases the national debt because we don't have any money to spend. We'd have to go sell some bonds. And in doing all of that, Wall Street is wringing its hands and licking its lips to say, where's the money going to go? Because those are the stocks we want to buy. Are you going to put more money into defense? We're going to go buy those. Tell us where you're going to put money and Wall Street will tell you how they're going to invest in anticipation. So what Dan is explaining to us is the likelihood of more fiscal stimulus for whatever reasons is really diminished, okay, based on the inflation data and the hot prices. Therefore, Wall Street is going to have nothing much to get excited about here. Steady as she goes, and we're going to be watching this inflation data still dominate and the Fed's reaction Dan Mahaffey is the Director of Policy for the Center of the Study of the Presidency and Congress and the Senior Political Analyst on the Farcast. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Orsman Jr., the president of the Orsman Automotive Group, lots and lots and lots of stores, uh, car dealerships in the Washington metropolitan area, we're going to talk about what's going on with the availability of cars, the demand for cars. Uh, it's been a hot, hot price. There's been a huge amount of inflation, high prices in the automobile market. Is that going to keep up? Because we've been hearing about repos and even people who have been buying more land so that they have some space to put all of these repossessed cars. Does that tell us something about the consumer? This is what we want to do for our forecast listeners. Let's bring all of these pieces together, Wall Street, Washington, and the world, when we come back on the Farcast. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, a great treat, ladies and gentlemen, a wonderful friend of mine, Robert Orsman Jr., is president and chief executive officer of the Orsman Automotive Group. This is a group of various car dealerships. Uh, Robert, how many? I know you all don't talk about this very much, but. Well, well, thank you for having me. Uh, so we're, we're actually in three, three different pods. Uh, so in, in my direct control, there's 
uh, 14 at the moment with plans, uh, you know, for, for a few more. Um, 14 different stores, yeah? What's that? 14 different stores, 14 Correct. different. 14 different franchises, uh, 11 locations. And 11 locations, yes. 11 locations, 14 different franchises. So 14 different brands of automobiles that you all represent and you're gonna be, and you're, and you're adding to that. So you're growing, you're growing your automobile uh, business um, in, in, a, in a tough time where supplies kind of tight and, and other people are, I know it's been, I guess the business has been doing okay, but it's what, tell me about your challenges, getting cars and where, where are the, where are the uh, rough parts in the uh, operations? You know, I'd say it's been a tough time adjusting to the climate, but as you mentioned, you know, the business side of it has been, has been, you know, pretty good for us. Um, you know, obviously you hear about supply and supply chains and, and kind of the, you know, the key word I thrown out is microchips, semiconductors and, and right. the resulting shortages for the last year and a half. Um, and we still face that today. And anyone who says they know when it's going to be over or end, uh, doesn't know a thing. Uh, right. it's, it's, it's basically, uh, indefinite. And so we view the rest of the year at least, uh, to be like it's been for the last, you know, 18 months. I talked to a, a, a guy who has a, uh, uh, here in Rehoboth, uh, who has a, uh, I think he has a Toyota store over in Northern Virginia and you know him, but I won't mention his name. Got and, it. Uh, he's, he's not a, he's not a family member of yours. And, <laughs> And he said, uh, he said, normally, he said, I have uh, two or 300 cars on my lot. He said, uh, when I left, I had 48. 48. That, that I mean, even seems, that, that, that seems like a lot, actually. There's, uh, you know, we, we used to, you know, we'd operate with, let's say, a sort of a two-month supply of new car inventory across the board. Pick the franchise, same, same, uh, same sort of math. Uh, but we're now in a day and age and a strategy that's kind of evolved from, you know, the supply chain crisis where a lot of the times we're operating with between zero to 10 new cars on the ground at any given franchise. And really, and really. And so what's, what's changed in that model is you, know, you still earn cars or so allocated vehicles, but we've, as an industry collectively have adopted kind of the pre-sale um, sort of strategy and, um, as a way of operating. So, you know, when a car arrives, it's already been sold. And so we're still seeing those customers. We're still selling them a car. In theory, uh, the car just isn't on the ground. And but so, I can't come into, I can't come into a dealership, uh, and, and buy a car and you hand me the keys and I drive out. And uh, any very, very, if you're very unlikely, if it's an actually a specific car you're looking for, that's very rare. Uh, oh. if you just need wheels, there's probably a, you know, a new car there, you know, we can sell you. Um, but, but the reality is if it's a specific, uh, you know, without getting into the minutia specific enough vehicle you're looking for, uh, you have to pre-order it. Uh, we pre-sell it and you know, you, you have to wait a few months. What about used cars? Are you able to get them now? I'm hearing about all of these repos and, and, and a huge wave of repos. And I'm wondering if, if people have jobs and we've got 3.6%, you know, unemployment and we've got wages increasing. Why aren't people making their car payments? I'm, I'm a little confused. Well, you start with your, you know, talking about used cars and there's two ways for a dealer to source used cars, uh, either a trade-in from a customer buying a new vehicle or a used vehicle. And that's their, right. that's their trade. Or uh, we simply buy cars from different auction houses. And so 
you know, in years past and what was kind of the old normal, um, you know, in a perfect world, we would probably trade around three quarters of our inventory and we would purchase the other 25%. Obviously, when you're selling less vehicles, there's less of the trade opportunity. So we're now, we're now buying uh, roughly three quarters of the uh, inventory. So it's, it's, it's totally uh, reversed in, term, in terms of, you know, our purchasing habits and ways we fill inventory, but um, we still have used cars. It's, it's, it increases the price, obviously, when you, when you buy from uh, competing auction houses, which is part of that used car inflation that, that we all see in the market. Um, and it's interesting, you mentioned, you know, repos and, and the possibility of, uh, you know, of, of where that goes and, and people buying land, uh, you know, for the uh, uh, assumption of that, you know, the average car payment, which I was reading a few days ago uh, in the U.S. now is, is somewhere like $700 or so. Really? And, which is extraordinary. Um, it's way high. I, mean, know, I wouldn't it's, have ever believed it would be that the average car payment is $700. It's over $700 wow. now. Wow. And so when I hear that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I, I did this, I've done this for years, but it's been probably four or five years. I will sit every four or five years and run a budget for a family of four. And I go to the government websites and they will tell you the cost. It's amazing the amount of information on these government websites. They'll tell you the annual cost to for a child eight years old. And they'll tell you the cost of a child 10 years old. And they'll give you the average income and earnings and housing costs and shelter costs and food and everything. And then I add insurance and I add all of the other stuff to figure out if you're out there making as a you know family of four, your $80,000 a year, how you live and how much money you have left. None of those sites, Robert, would tell me to put in a $700 car payment. That's Correct. Amazing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a record by a mile. And one of the interesting uh, tidbit as well to add to that, at the same time, as as consumers are paying more for everything, quite frankly, uh, but you know, speaking about cars specifically, you know, the same token. What's interesting is the average trade-in and the average equity has reached now ten thousand dollars for uh, you know per consumer. And so, wow. and so, while you may say, oh, well, you know, you're paying a premium buying a vehicle, their actual their actual trade-in and and the unit they already own from just the value of used cars and the necessity and demand for it, there, there is an equity uh, gain from that if they do choose to uh, you know, buy a car and trade it in. So it, it does offset a bit uh, in that scenario. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, it, where payments are at $700 is, um, it's, it's obviously a record. And um, one of the statistics I saw earlier, I was talking to Jim Labenthal from Serity Partners, and he was on the Farcast. He was also on CNBC today. They were discussing the car market. He said that the uh, production right now in the US seasonally adjusted rate was 14 million cars and demand is seen at 17 million cars. Now that's a huge gap in production and demand. How can the car business increase production, number one? How long can this last, number two? And where do prices go? What are you seeing? I mean, I know you, you've got this big business that you run uh, and it's got a lot of moving parts. How do you budget for next year? How do you figure out your employee costs and, and whether you've got, I'm sure you've got some wage pressures in the shop and other places. I mean, how do you get all this math to work? Well, I'll start with the, you know, the, the, the SAR, which is the, you know, the sales rate in a given year. So we're, you know, we're tracking about 14 million 
uh, new vehicles in the U.S. this year, and at the demand of 17 million, that that's what I believe in 2019 uh, the total star rate was around 17 million. So you know we we had the same demand we had you know three years ago pre-COVID, uh, but with uh, obvious uh, you know supply constraints that. Yes. Um, that, again, that we face, but it's interesting in terms of production and, and meeting demand. You know, everyone throws out it's always microchips, semiconductors as, as the reason, but it goes beyond that. And you know, as we you know well know, obviously we have a you know a war in, in Ukraine, which uh, which obvious headwinds with production logistics. But what we see in the U.S. is the actual logistical system and shipping vehicles and. Um, you know, and, and truckers is yes. a lot of these guys got out of the industry and oh. uh, and have failed to come back to the industry or have chosen, uh, you know, maybe they're driving for Amazon Prime now and right. better quality of life and have chosen to get away from 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 that, uh, the automobile sector. So we have a shortage of drivers. And what happens is maybe cars are already produced and ready for delivery, but we can't get them from A to B. Wow, and so there's it's just there's so many layers of this um, uh, yeah, of this supply issue, and it goes from actual production to to logistics and how we prepare for it and, and plan for it. It's really, you know, we, we've adopted this new way of business where now it seems like this is you know I know it's cliche the new normal, but it is a new normal. And so you know we plan, you know we now plan our business and we plan on operating as if. You know, quite frankly, this sort of this sort of strategy, you know, won't change. And right. you look at the things that even even metrics that you know we, we are held accountable for, and what we look at, you know, managing and operating, used to be how many you know, how many new cars did you sell in a month. Now it's you're looking at you know what is your turn rate, for example, which is you know of your given inventory between month you know day one of the month to the close of the month vehicles you already had in stock versus vehicles you received in the given month, what percent of that did you turn? And so, yep. you know, objectively, we're trying to be the 100% everywhere, um, not quite there, but it's, um, it's, it's become the new, uh, the new measurable for us versus just volume. Is everything selling, Robert, the low-end economy cars to the luxury cars? Is there any strength in the market? Is there a sweet spot or is the supply chain, you know, so constrained that everything that you get sells? Everything, everything is selling. It's, uh, I mean, there, there literally is, there's demand for it all. And again, I'm reminded of that old joke, you know, uh, years ago, Robert, uh, uh, actually, before you were born, no, just right around when you were born. I went over to the Soviet Union to help as a consultant to help them open their stock markets. And I taught capitalism to the communists. It was really cool, but there was an old joke. You would order a car in the Soviet Union. We didn't understand it, couldn't understand it here in the US. And they, if you got permission to buy a car, it could take like two years. And so they'd, you'd go to the Soviet and they'd say, okay, you can buy a car, comrade. And they say, well, okay, it'll be here on February 23rd, 2024. And then the re response would be, well, will be that be in the morning or the afternoon? And they say, what? Will it be in the morning or the afternoon on February 23rd, 2024? Well, morning, why? And he goes, oh, well, the plumber's coming in the afternoon. You know, uh, it, was, it was the old supply chain, but really, you know, and then we'd all laugh and we think, oh, those silly communists, why don't they get with it? And here we all are doing the same thing. So as you look at your business plans uh, for the Orsman Automotive Group, 
is this the new normal and how long at some point out there do you have us returning to a normal supply and demand 17 million versus 17 million sort of scenario I would say, I would say, you know, from 30,000 feet, this is the new, this is normal going forward. I believe there is a sort of a correction uh, eventually that is maybe between where we were in 2019 versus where we are today. And so if demand is 17 million and production is 14 million, you know, maybe 15 million unit production cycle in a given year versus demand of 17 million, obviously that, you know, makes it more favorable for uh, you know, uh, for consumers, and you know, this is this assumes a lot of uh, the unknowns becoming known. But again, is that next year? Is it three years? I don't know. If a listener out there is considering buying a car, and you're going to get some little inside information here, folks, Robert, give them their best, your best advice when they walk into a car store, interested actually in getting the fairest deal that they can get on a car. Give them some advice. Well, for the Ferris deal, you know, you go to com. start there. Uh, oh, online. You should uh, go, start online. Kind of the old adage and the, the stereotype of, of, of our industry is, you know, is how do you find a good deal? And did, did someone get a good deal or not get a good deal? The reality is we've become, in essence, a one price operation. I mean, we're not, you know, there is no, there is no more real negotiation um, again, because of, of constraints, and it's really that way everywhere. And um, it, does it make it, you know, are you paying more for a vehicle? Yes, but I think a lot of the times it makes it an easier process, and yeah. it takes away some of the anxiety of even if even if a person is getting a great deal, they don't necessarily believe that or think it. They're always going to question, you know, is this really a good deal? Well, what's this, and how about that, you know? But in this new model. Um, it's all about, you know, it's and what we preach is we don't really control the pricing at this point. I mean, it's, it's the market forces, but it's the customer experience. And that's where I think a lot of our focus has shifted is not into you know, the individual, you know, you know, dollars and cents of a deal. But what was that customer's experience? If they're yes. going to be, if this is, you know, this is not our, we're not controlling this, but this is the customer's experience, you know, uh, in terms of paying what we would say is inflated amounts for vehicles, let's at least make it the best possible experience for them. Can we offer, you know, remote uh, deliveries, uh, uh, remote servicing, which we do, um, but, but make, it, make it exceptional. And I think we've been able to do that because there's less volume, there's more focus and attention on that individual customer. And so, um, you know, I guess, you know, yeah, I don't wanna say you necessarily you pay for great service, but it's one of the byproducts uh, that has been really a positive for us and I think for customers. Well, to what you're saying is that since we've got a supply chain issue, we've got a constrained environment, the price is the price, you might as well get the service. Robert Orsman Jr. is the president and CEO of the Orsman Automotive Group, has been with us before. We always learn so much when you come on, Robert. Thank you so much for being I, on I the love, I love the forecast, anytime. We love having you. That's it, ladies and gentlemen, for another week for the forecast. As we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, we'll be back again next week. Stay safe, enjoy your weekend, and thank you for listening. Share us on your social media. In Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, I'm Michael Farr. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the forecast. Thanks to Michael's guest. 
Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest Robert Orsman. The Barcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Barr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjenningsatfarmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in the podcast, including by speakers who are not office employees or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farm Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farm Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help and and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We share the podcast with friends and colleagues. Go beyond the headlines each week with the podcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. All information referenced here is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Hightower Advisors LLC, Farm Miller in Washington, or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to entity entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.